I thought you might enjoy a sermon on the modern statement of faith of our church, a statement called Living Faith. You may or may not be familiar with this green booklet, which is called Living Faith. It's found in many churches, I might add. It was received in the 1980s as an acceptable statement of faith by our church. And then in the 90s, it was made the theological standard of the Presbyterian Church in Canada. Legally, it is referred to as our subordinate standard, interpreting our main standard, which is the teachings of Jesus and of the Bible. We are a Christ-centered church that takes very seriously the teachings of the Bible. The reason I'm speaking about living faith today is that I was both the chairman of the committee that wrote it and also the chief writer of the document. The committee that wrote it was comprised of only five people, myself as chairman and four other people. One of those people was the Reverend Pat Hanna, who died last year. Her death especially saddened me and even shocked me as I then realized that I was the last person living who actually took part in the Living Faith Committee. And when I'm gone, no one could say I served on the committee that wrote Living Faith. The former chief subordinate standard of the Presbyterian Church in Canada was the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith. And I'm one of those who, while quickly acknowledging the problems that are there, believe that at many points it achieved the level of greatness. However, it is several hundred years old and was written between the years of 1642 and 1649, and it is simply the fact that documents age and time moves on. It was and is a Puritan document written in the middle of the English Civil War. To it were sent six commissioners from the Church of Scotland. Oddly, even with such small Scottish representation, it soon came to characterize the essence and the teachings of that particular church, and of course, spread into worldwide Presbyterianism. But alas, it came in our church mainly to be known for its two main flaws. Two main flaws. One, what it said about predestination, and two, what it said about the Roman Catholic Church, and especially the latter. There, the Pope is referred to as, quote, the Antichrist, that man of sin, end of quote. And what it is said about predestination is most clearly stated in a section referred to as God's eternal decrees. There, people are simply predestined for hell or heaven with no say in the matter. Indeed, according to the Westminster Confession, it almost seems as though everything was preordained by God. It writes, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others foreordained to everlasting death. Section 3.7 states, 
that the rest of mankind, God was pleased, according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. Now it is surpassingly interesting that I have never actually met anyone who believes that part of the Westminster Confession of Faith. You can go to the most conservative members of our denomination, and I've never found a single one of them who actually believes that in prehistory, God decided in advance and entirely arbitrarily to send masses of people to hell. One word describes all of this, and the word is nonsense, nonsense. It is shocking that such complete lunacy ever invaded our theology, but it certainly did. It was right there at the standards that we were supposedly meant to uphold. So, little wonder that the church wanted a new statement of faith. Again, let me repeat that the Confession of Faith, Westminster Confession, is much better than its flaws and that there is much that is excellent there. What a shame that all that good teaching fades into the background as people grind their teeth at the wild overstatement against the Pope and the nonsense about God acting like a complete lunatic by predestinating masses of people to hell. In living faith, nothing is said about the Pope, and there is no attack on the Roman Catholic Church. Far from it. Also, the word predestinate is used only once, where we state in section three that we are called for a purpose. We have been predestined to be like Christ and to serve God. As with Israel in the Old Testament, so with the new humanity in the New Testament, God chooses us. There is assurance in knowing that the living God has eternal purposes to achieve through us. God will bring to completion the work of grace begun in him. In other words, imparting from the Westminster Confession of Faith's view of predestination, we did not commit the error, the mistake, of asserting that therefore God does nothing. God does not act. God does not will, but that everything is only up to us. If we had gone in that direction, that would indeed be another way of gutting the clear teaching of the Bible. Ours is a God who wills, a God who loves, and a God who acts. And now let's take a look at living faith. When I started work on the new statement, I was much impressed by the style and outline of an American statement called a declaration of faith, a product of what we often refer to as the Southern Presbyterian Church. I loved its outline of topics to be dealt with, and I loved the style that it tried to aim at, but didn't quite, could quite actually achieve, the idea of having only one thought per line and us creating a type of prose poem. The thought of one thought per line especially attracted me as I felt that the document would then become much more readable 
than a document written in mass paragraphs. I discussed this with the committee and they immediately agreed with me. Note that it is only the style and outline, not the contents of the Declaration of Faith that attracted me. In fact, I felt that the Southern Document made too many mistakes, the chief of which was putting too much into each line and paying insufficient attention to the actual choice of words. I felt strongly that the lines should be short, that the words should be short and simple and direct with a strong bias of words with Anglo-Saxon in origin rather than Latin. For instance, here is what we came up with speaking of Jesus as truly divine. Could we have projected on the screen selection three, two? Let me turn to it, and as you remain seated, I want us to read it together, but just let me find it here. Let us read this together. It's projected in front of you. Jesus Christ, truly God. Together, God became man and dwelt among us. In silence we ponder, in awe we confess this amazing truth. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the eternal Son of God humbled himself to be one with us. To Israel and to the world came God in Christ. To call Jesus Christ the Son of God is to say that he is God of God, light of light, begotten, not made. To see Jesus is to see God incarnate. To know the Son is to know the Father. God's nature is expressed in Jesus, the very Word of God. Through him were all things made. His life is the light of the world. Jesus Christ is Lord, he is one with the Holy, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you very much. That gives you an idea of the style of living faith and how we approached the presentation of theology. And I think many people liked the fact that the lines were so short and the language so simple. I would, I would like us now to read another section from living faith, and this would be section 6.2, uh, a section on doubt. I'll have that projected, please. Just let me find it. And again, please remain seated, but let us read this together. We are not always certain that God is with us. At times, God calls us to live in this world without experiencing the divine presence, often discerning God's nearness only as we look back. At other times, God seems absent in order that our faith may be tested. Through such struggle, we mature in faith. God may also chasten and strengthen us through the hard circumstances of life. Questioning may be a sign of growth. It may also be disobedience. We must be honest with ourselves. Since we are to love God with our minds as well as our hearts, the working through of doubt is part of our growth in faith. The church includes many who struggle with doubt. 
Jesus accepted the man who prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Though the strength of our faith may vary and in many ways be assailed and weakened, yet we may find assurance in Christ through confidence in his word, the sacraments of his church, and the work of his spirit. I want to talk about that section on doubt just for a moment. Uh, in some ways, the most unusual thing about living faith is that it includes a section on doubt. I cannot name any modern statement of faith that actually includes such a section. When I first proposed this idea to the committee, uh, they were very negative. They said, well, why do you want a section on doubt? And I said, the reason is that my sense of the church today, and this was 40 years ago, is that in spite of the fact many people come to church, there's a lot of doubt in the hearts of people. We have to write a document that is actually in touch with the people that we are trying to speak to. So the committee actually accepted that idea and we had a section on doubt. Initially, the section on doubt was just the first two paragraphs that you read and the third and final paragraph on Christian assurance wasn't there as well, that wasn't there at all. I remember going to that meeting. This was the final meeting. We had been presenting our work to the church doctrine committee and the final meeting was myself there presenting the final version of living faith to them and they would then take it to the general assembly. And I remember one of my friends was on the committee and his name was uh, Ian Rennie. And Ian said, I get what you're trying to do by including a section on doubt. And I, I approve the idea that you have this section on doubt. But really, isn't the point of facing our doubts that we come to the point that we have assurance in Christ as our Savior and as our Lord? And he talked in that way for a minute or two. And then the committee started discussing that just for two or three minutes. I turned to them after just a very short discussion and I said, Ian, I think you've got me. I think you're right. I think really uh, the section on doubt really needs a third section on Christian assurance. And then a thought flashed in my mind. I said to the committee chairman, you're about to have a coffee break just in a few minutes, aren't you? He said, yes, I was actually about to interrupt you and just say, let's have our coffee break and continue the discussion. So I said to the committee, well, how about this? While you're having your coffee break, why don't I try to write a section on Christian assurance and then I can present it to you that we don't need an extra special meeting and we present this document to the church. And they said, well, they looked at me very quizzically and very doubtfully, a play on the word doubt, very doubtfully that I, that I could do that. But I said, let's give it a try. And they agreed. So they went off for coffee. And while they were having coffee, I took a piece of paper out and a pen and I started writing. I write a first version and I thought, no, that's not quite it. I adjusted that, did a bit more adjusting and suddenly I came up with the lines that we have there. And I got lucky because it just took five minutes to do. And they came back after the coffee appeared and I read this to them. And I'll read it to you again. Though the strength of our faith may vary, and in many ways be assailed and weakened, yet we may find assurance in Christ through confidence in his word, the sacraments of his church, and the work of his spirit.
<laughs> and I remember one of the guys on the committee saying, are you sure you didn't have that written out already and you just pulled it from your file? I said, no, that's, that didn't happen. No, I wrote it while you were gone. And I guess the fact is I got lucky because they approved it immediately and here it is now part of living faith. So that's just one of many, many stories about living faith. On the whole, we had an enormously strong and positive reaction to our work and to the issue of this book, issue of this book. Only one person wrote me a truly nasty letter. When I was nearing the completion of this document, I actually played a little game with myself and I asked myself two questions. Question one was, how many nasty letters attacking you and the committee and the document do you expect to get? And I came up with the number 40. Boy, I was totally wrong about that. The 40 became one. However, he almost made for up for all the others. It was nastiness beyond words. Anyhow, my decision on that one is just to do nothing. This guy can't be reasoned with, so do nothing. And I, I didn't hear anything else from him. Then I asked myself another question. Okay, you think 40 letters are gonna come. What, which part of the document do you think is gonna attract most fire? And I thought, well, that's a really easy question. And I think the part that's gonna attract most negative attention is the section on divorce. When I was working on the section on Christian family, I knew I had to include a line on divorce. And I thought, the, the church is forever horsing around on that particular topic and taught being way too careful. And I thought to myself, there are certain situations where in fact divorce is a good thing. Some marriages just fall apart. They're, they'll never be put back together again. And the fact that we allow divorce is a good thing, as that people can separate, regroup, and then get on with their lives. So I put this, these words into living faith. If I could find it. When a marriage is shattered beyond repair, it is sometimes better that it be dissolved than that the family continue to live in bitterness. And I think that sums it up, and I think that's a positive view, and that's there. Well, I was wrong about the number of negative letters I would get, and I was certainly wrong about the 40 letters I'm expecting on that line alone, because the 40 turned into zero. It's quite interesting. I think there's a liberality in our Presbyterian church that people sometimes miss. On the whole, the document has ensured, enjoyed a remarkable success. Dozens and dozens of churches have actually put this document in their pew. In fact, you walk in and there it is, dozens and dozens of copies. And many churches have a responsive reading from Living Faith every week. Although probably now, almost 40 years later, probably fewer do than did say 20 years ago. I don't know how many copies have been sold. When I was writing an article on the record about 25 years ago about living faith, I made the point, I don't know how many copies have been sold, but I think the number is very high. And I said, the issue of living faith that I'm using says on the inside cover that this was the 23rd printing, 23 printings in just two years. So it may be 
that as many as 200,000 copies have been sold, but again, I'm not stating that as a fact, I don't really know. You should be told that about two years after Living Faith was accepted by our church as an acceptable statement of faith, and then 10 years later made our subordinate standards, that uh, uh, I was two, just two years after that event, I was sent by the church to a conference in Geneva. This was a conference on the worldwide Presbyterian Reformed churches, and they were grappling with the question, is it possible for us to write a document for the entire world that represents the Presbyterian Church. Well, they'd actually never got around to do it, so I guess the answer is no, but during that conference, I remember going to the very first meeting, and I had made a mistake, and I got there way too early, and just when I got there, another man walked into the room, and he was way too early as well, and we both looked at our watches, and we kind of looked at one another and say, hey, we're early. Do you feel like going for a short walk? He said, yes, I was just about to ask you. So we did that. And as we began the walk, I introduced myself, and then he introduced himself. And then he said this, I'm a professor of theology at a Presbyterian college in San Francisco. And one thing I do is I teach modern confessions. And in my class just a few months ago, I collected as many modern statements of faith as I could from the worldwide body of the Presbyterian and Reformed churches. And I gave them to my class and I said, here, read this, and then when you've read it, tell me which is your favorite. And I was delighted to hear him say, your favorite was living faith. An interesting, an interesting story and a very interesting fact that kind of made my day. You should also be told, and I'm going to say this to you twice because you'll find it hard to believe when I say it once, you should also be told that living faith is also the basis of the modern Baptist statement of faith. And I'll repeat that because you'll think I've made a mistake or you've made a mistake in thinking that. I'll repeat it. You should also be told that living faith is also the basis of the modern Baptist statement of faith. This is the Baptist Convention of Ontario and Quebec. About two or three years after Living Faith was accepted, the Baptist Church decided that they wanted a document as well. And clearly, they encountered Living Faith, and I, they must have said something along the lines of, we're gonna have a hard time improving on this. Why don't we just go to the Presbyterian Church and ask them for permission to use the document as the basis for our statement of faith. In, in other words, we need to be free to change it where we feel we need to change it in the direction of Baptist theology. I was personally very delighted that the clerks of the General Assembly gave them permission to do that, and their new, their new statement of faith came out many, many years ago. You might ask, well, is it recognizable as based on living faith? And the answer is yes, very easily, very directly. And indeed, most of living faith survives within the Baptist statement of faith. Hard to believe, but it happens to be true, and also a very nice thing to be able to say. Living faith is now part of the life of our church, and most people who use it are much relieved to have left the Westminster Confession of Faith behind. We have no interest, no interest, in making astonishingly nasty statements about the Pope, nor is it 
nor is anyone I know attracted to the lunacies of predestination, God selecting people to spend eternity in hell. Predestination exists, all right, but it means simply that God has plans, that God has intentions for both his world and his church. And all that has exactly nothing to do with the crazy idea that in prehistory, God had decided to send some to heaven and others to hell based on an arbitrary decision that he made in prehistory. So these then are some of my ideas on living faith. One of the great journeys and surprises of my life. When I began my ministry as a missionary to Indians, yes, I was an Indian missionary in Manitoba back in 1962. I little thought that I would have anything to do with altering the basic outline of our church's doctrinal positions. I honor then the many people who gave their time and ideas to the writing of living faith and can only hope that it continues to be a help and a blessing in our beloved church. These are my thoughts on living faith.